Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, writer Todd Smith, and today we're joined by President of National Demographics Corporation, Doug Johnson, and partner at Nielsen Merximer, Chris Scannell. Doug and Chris, welcome to the PCEO Report. Thanks, Ryder. Good to be back. Good to have you back. Repeat guests on the Public CEO Report. Good to have you here. Um, All right. So today I want to talk about what a lot of local government in California is a buzz about, which is uh, the Supreme Court decision concerning the Santa Monica California Voting Rights Act case. I'm sure there's a greater way to define that, but that's how they generally know it within the city world. Um, And I want to talk to you about the outcome of that case. The first obvious question is, why am I talking to you two? So, Chris, uh, why are you qualified to talk about this case? Uh, well, you know, Nielsen Merksmer generally um, is one of the leading redistricting and voting rights practices in the state of California, and I co-chair that that practice. Um, you know, done uh, redistricting for hundreds of jurisdictions, um, and litigated a number of voting federal and CBRA uh, cases uh, throughout the state of California. So, I have okay. a fair amount of experience in the, in the field. That sounds that sounds qualifying. Doug, how about you? Yeah, the same. National Demographics Corporation, or NDC, we've been doing this work since 1979, and and I've been working on it, well, started in 1991 and then came back in 2001 and been working ever since then. Uh, We've done, uh, we're getting very close to 500 districting and redistricting projects now, and uh, we recently checked and found that uh, of the cities that have moved to district elections, we've handled 85% of them. So it's uh, it's always been our pleasure to work with the locals, and uh, we're Happy to help uh, share some information about the latest twist and turn in this crazy law. Uh, so I've had the pleasure of knowing you both for a long time, uh, over 20 years at this point, and uh, which is just kind of a happy coincidence. The three of us ended up in this world of, uh, I guess it depends on your perspective, happy or unhappy circumstance. We ended <laughs> up in this world together of local government in this particular niche of the California Voting Rights Act. Uh, but here we are. So. Um, uh, clearly, we have t- two of the most experienced professionals in this space to help kind of dissect this lawsuit. Uh, so quick background for the audience that might be a little newer to this. Chris, do you have like a 45-second summary? Like what was this case, who brought it, and kind of its recent history and why we got to this point? Yeah, I mean, recent history, it's been going on for probably six or seven years now and all is said and done. But um, it was a case brought by um, – primarily the, the Shankman and Hughes firm, which is one of the big uh, firms operating on the plaintiff side in this area. Um, they sued Santa Monica, I think in 2017, might've been 2018, alleging a California Voting Rights Act violation and also an equal protection violation. Um, and had a, a substantial trial, um, You know, went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, um, bounced up and down to the uh, Court of Appeal a couple times on various things. Um, and at the end of the day, the uh, judge ended up ruling in favor of the plaintiffs and held that the city's at-large system both um, violated the California Voting Rights Act and the Equal Protection Clause. Um, the idea being that there was some intentional discrimination underlying its original adoption way back when. And so it went to the Court of Appeal um, in the L.A. area, the second district, and got an opinion out of that court in 19, or 2020 that ruled in favor of Santa Monica. And the basic theory of the ruling was, look, Santa Monica's uh, Latino population, which is what the case was brought on behalf of, is small enough that even uh, if you impose a district-based voting system 
in the city of Santa Monica, you're still not going to have anywhere near a majority Latino citizen voting age population district. And that being the case, it's re you can't really say that the at-large system um, is preventing them from electing their preferred candidates. Um, and so, it, you know, an alternative, an election a district-based system like the one the trial court imposed isn't really going to improve their lot. And so there's no liability. Um, and then the, the California Supreme Court agreed to hear it shortly thereafter. And we've been waiting for three years now to, uh, to get a final ruling. And three years of that has happened. So we now found ourselves with a ruling, which uh, I guess, what was the ruling? Doug, what's your take? What's what's your hot take on that ruling? <laughs> well, unfortunately, the the ruling was some philosophical points of law and then sending it back down for more hearings. So we well, we have a ruling. We are far from a final ruling in this case, I guess. Uh, but um you know, it, they've sent it back down to the appeals court to consider this issue of dilution, and there's a chance it'll be sent back by them down to the trial court. So, uh, so we are we have a little bit more understanding of the law now, but no, nothing definitive. Doug or uh, Chris, what's how about similar hot take from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that it's sort of a. Um, a mixed blessing for both sides, right? Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, it would have been great for Santa Monica's perspective and from the perspective of a lot of cities in California, if the court had adopted sort of the bright line test that the Court of Appeal did, right? It would have given a lot of certainty in terms of knowing whether you were probably, you know, um, at risk of liability or not. You know, there would have still been some gray areas some wobblers, et cetera, but a lot of jurisdictions with small uh, minority populations in the same boat would have had some some comfort and some knowledge that they were they, you know, potentially not liable under this act. So it's clearly, you know, from that perspective, uh, a, a bit of a loss, certainly for Santa Monica, because they, you know, got themselves overturned. But also, I think for, you know, jurisdictions up and down the state more generally that have that that demographic makeup. On the flip side, there are some upsides to it from the, the public entity perspective, too, if you're trying to figure this out. You know, before this case was decided, a lot of the plaintiffs uh, attorneys who were litigating these cases basically took the position that if you could prove racially polarized voting, you were done. And that was the end of the issue. And you as a city lost. And, you know, truth be told, you know, most jurisdictions have, depending on how you define it, uh, racially polarized voting. And, you know, uh, there's there's sort of a difference between factually, legally, uh, factually and legally significant polarized voting, right? And there was always a fight over what what really counts and what doesn't. Um, but this opinion really sort of put some teeth into the act and said, look, even if you have racially polarized voting, you still have to look at the broader context in which all of this operates, all the facts and circumstances. It really sort of re-imported some of the standards from federal law that that tie the Voting Rights Act to the goal of preventing discriminatory voting systems as opposed to just sort of you lost some elections and, and trying to, to distinguish between those two scenarios. Hmm. Any f further comments on that, Doug? Yeah, no, I think it, 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 it was interesting. They went down the road that I think the city's hoped of saying you have to prove dilution, but then they stopped before ruling on whether or not there is dilution in Santa Monica, you know, and, and similar jurisdictions. So some of these challenges we see where, 
you know, four of the five council members are, are Latino and the plaintiff is you know, claiming that on behalf of Latinos, there's a voting rights violation. This probably puts an end to those. But on the flip side, there's so many factors in play now that the already expensive cases will now become even more expensive. So there's there's more defense for a jurisdiction, but it's also going to cost more to make that defense and you're more financially at risk. So it's it's a as Chris said, it's things in there for both sides uh, to, to like and take uh, to point at and say you're good for their side. The financial risk, I guess, is an interesting comment. I get also to clarify, uh, have either of you done any work involving this case? No. I would, if, if they had lost at the appeals court ruling, I was on call before with the city to uh, help them district, but I haven't been involved in the case itself. Okay. And Doug uh, and Chris, neither for you? No. Okay. I just, I just want to make sure we're clear about uh, kind of familiarity or, or conflicts of interest. And obviously, I suspect if you were involved, you wouldn't probably be doing this podcast with me right now. <laughs> um, so uh, I guess uh, so an observation is, Doug, you brought up a kind of economic consequences. You know, roughly speaking, every jurisdiction, when they talk about should we fight, should we not fight the Seabury letter, at least from a city perspective, and really, frankly, any jurisdiction, it's like, no, the economics of fighting this are really not worth it. It's very hard to argue. Not in every case. There might be circumstances where it becomes worth worth the fight, but there's always economic risk. That economic risk, as I understand it, is you're on the hook for the attorney fees for the plaintiff uh, if they ultimately prevail, and typically the system is likely for them to prevail. Is that a fair summary of circumstances? Yeah, I mean, I think um, this case makes it more possible that you might be able to prevail, um, but you know, it's never going to be a clean shot. And yeah, if you lose, then you they probably ring up more fees in the process and you're going to ring up more fees on your own side, just defending, right? You know, you're going to have more attorney time. You're going to have more expert time. You're going to have, you know, all of that stuff. So it, it kind of ups the ante on both sides of that equation, I suppose. Yeah. And did you have a comment on that, Doug? I just say there's, a lot of talk about it. It's impossible to win. And well, and where that comes from is that no one has won yet on the jurisdiction side. The the three or four that have gone to court, the plaintiffs all prevailed in some form. Um, but, you know, that's a very limited pool of just three or four cases. So it's not impossible to win. It just is a long road, as, as Santa Monica is showing. Um, you know, I did actually look up before we got on this, I looked up and the, and the original case was filed in 2016. So we're seven years into it now and, and wow. we're probably still assuming there's no settlement we're still probably years from resolving that case i was going to ask i mean are we three years out from resolution if not longer i mean theoretically if the supreme court sits on there if it gets appealed back up to the supreme court which i assume is possible throughout this entire circumstance it could be three years plus whatever the trial time is so we could be five plus years out on this thing possibly i i suspect it won't take that long this time around the first first round, you know, the three years in the Supreme Court, you have to keep in mind that, you know, 2020 and 2021 were a weird time, obviously. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of, of cases got bogged down a bit. So I, I don't know if I would consider that to be, uh, you know, an indicator of the future, uh, you know, length of time for that sort of thing. But it, it could be several years off. I appreciate your claim that 2022 is not a year, weird year, 2023, which they seem equally weird to me at this point, but maybe for different reasons. Um, so, uh, and just notably, I mean, 
I don't know what the exact number is, but the, there's a general assumption that Santa Monica has probably had to expend or is potentially on the hook for 15 plus million dollars throughout this process is perhaps the case or more. Uh, last so, I heard uh, it was 25 to the plaintiff's attorneys. So, uh, yeah. so never mind what. Yeah, so never mind what Santa Monica spent on their own attorneys, and that's not a that's not a pick on Santa Monica. It's just like they're out there waging waging a, a which I know there's plenty of cities that are probably quietly on the sidelines, like applauding and hoping they're very successful. Right. And we know that there are numbers that are uh, kind of very interested in the outcome of this case, which is why we're doing this whole podcast. Mm -hmm. um, I also noted just because they're theoretically going to have a lot more legal work ahead of them to get to the end game, um, as you mm -hmm. just kind of noted, uh, and. At some point, they may choose to settle, too, in which case, depending upon, I guess, maybe depending even how they settle, will have no actual bearing on like the settlement won't actually establish case law. Right. So we will actually will end up stuck with this amorphous decision at this point. That's right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I guess the dream is that they at least battle battle it through. So we get some bright line determinations from the courts. Is that the hope? Yeah, although I'm not sure that that's a likely result. You know, I think um, it, whether they win or lose, it's going to be based, you know, because the test now is all the facts and circumstances, it's going to be based on Santa Monica's facts and circumstances. And so, you know, that may be of limited use in terms of deciding, you know, if you're a different city and you have different facts and circumstances, how that plays out. You know, there we may get some additional guidance, but it, it may not be helpful necessarily. So, Doug, can you comment on that a little more further? I mean, fundamentally what I'm hearing is, sure. and this has always been part of the discussion, is just like even if Santa Monica won, whatever that meant, uh, that wasn't necessarily like everybody else could just basically put a stop to their district formation processes, right? So can you kind of clarify what that means? Yeah, it all depends on how they win, if they win, um, or even if they lose. So, you know, Santa Monica is weird for one of these cases in that, you know, they had a Latino on the council. Uh, you know, they had elected a couple of Latinos. It wasn't a place where there weren't any on the council. They, ironically, after the case, you know, over the seven years since this case was filed, they currently have a Latino majority on their council. <laughs> um, so this is the weirdness, and the and the ruling touched on that a little bit about the remedy has to not make Latinos worse off in their ability to elect. So there's all those dynamics. I mean. The, the plaintiff's husband is on the council. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very uh, unusual set of facts that we're looking at here post the filing of the case. Um, so if, if they're specific to that, specific facts, and as, as Chris mentioned, they, they can only draw a, a one third Latino seat. And it will include, I think, last I look, looked, I think it will include three of the current Latino council members in that one seat. So they would actually lose. Um, so there's a lot of odd facts that are Santa Monica specific in here. Um, it does raise a couple of interesting questions that the ruling leaves open, you know, and we'll get into this, but there's talk of the plaintiffs need to show that a, a, a legal alternative system would make them better off. Well, in Los Angeles County, cumulative voting and ranked choice voting and those kinds of unusual voting systems can't be handled by the county election systems. So do those do those count as legally viable? Maybe, maybe not if the county can't implement them. So, so there are some questions that might be useful to have the court raise, but whether the court will go there or not, one never knows, right? Right. 
Uh, and just uh, sorry, this is a horribly naive question. They never ended up moving to districts, right? Because they've been in this court battle. Right. So they ended right. up electing three Latinos to city council at large. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. And but they all hail from a similar area such that if they went to district elections in all probability, they would all end up in one district and they they get narrowed down to one of those three, probably making them back on council, theoretically. Uh, most of them. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. All right. So what's like what's supposed to happen now? This this has been you said it was uh, I don't know if the right word is remanded, but it's been sent back to uh, where an appeals court. Yeah. So. When the Court of Appeal decided the case in 2020, there were sort of two questions. There was this issue of, you know, is it really dilution if you can't really have an alternative system that would make it better? But there was also an, uh, there were also questions on appeal about just the ruling that there was racially polarized voting, you know, whether that was correct or not. And so the um, Supreme Court sent it back and said, you guys, you should figure that out. You know, you that issue is still out there. We're not going to rule on it because you haven't considered it yet. And so in theory, the Court of Appeal could do that um, or it could send it back to the trial court for more fact finding. You know, the some of the um, issues that Doug raised about the majority being on the council and the fact that they're you know all in the same area. It, the, the Court of Appeal could say, well, look, you know, based on this new standard, we need to, to send it back for, for additional uh, trial court uh, proceedings. And so. Uh, it'll, we'll see how they how they decide to go there. My, if I were betting, I, I would kind of lean toward the, the latter. I would suspect that they will send it back down further, but maybe not. What's the timeline to find that all out? Um, I mean, I would think in the next probably couple of months at the latest. Um, you know, it, the Supreme Court will send it back down pretty much right away, and then you know, once the the panel that has this case assigned to it has a chance to sort of review it and consult and um, you know, decide what their best course of action is, then they'll issue an order one way or the other. Okay. Um, all right. So as we've kind of harped on, we don't have a near term and immediate answer, but uh, we know there's a bunch of cities out there as there are constantly in other jurisdictions, not just cities that are either proactively or um reactively uh, moving towards district by district elections, right? Uh, like what math, and I realize every city has its unique circumstances, so you're not offering legal advice. What is, but what is their, like what's their- Thank you for that disclaimer, Ryder. Thank you, I, well, I try. I pretend to be an attorney on uh, public CEO. Um, what, <laughs> what, like what, 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 what's a city do? What's an agency to do right now? Uh, do they freeze? Do they boldly move forward? Because uh, there's also some interesting secondary kind of tensions around increased outreach requirements and other legislation that's looming out there, which I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but Doug, you might want to touch on that for 30 seconds too in the course of some of this decision-making. So uh, Doug, why don't you comment on that first? On, yeah, so looming in the background of all this is AB 764. Uh, which is the common cause is sponsored and the, it's a bill that's moved through the legislature. It's moved through, it's been approved by the assembly. It's been go through the Senate committees and it's sitting in Senate approves um, that would significantly expand the outreach requirements, the public engagement requirements and the costs, the number of hearings you have to hold and all the costs associated with that. It would also take the Fair Maps Act which currently only applies to cities and counties and apply it to community college districts and to, and 
to medium and large school districts, and then in a limited form to special districts and small school districts. So it would greatly expand the reach of this law. Um, and it also sets up some big legal problems for jurisdictions. Um, it bans the, the adopting a map for the purpose of favoring or, or discriminating against an incumbent. And well, especially in smaller jurisdictions, when everyone sitting on the dais knows where everyone lives and has probably been to each other's houses because it's small jurisdictions, if they pair incumbents, aren't they discriminating? And if they don't pair them, aren't they favoring? So it's it also um, sets up a very high uh, level of liability, regardless of what you do in your final plan. So, so that law is all floating in the background. And, and if it passes and is adopted, we'll kick in January 1st, uh, as currently written. We're, we've asked them to delay the, the kick in until July, but I don't think they're going to. So people, the the 20 some jurisdictions that are currently redistricting, or I'm sorry, currently districting, are kind of rushing to finish before July 1 so that the rules don't change mid process and they have to start all over again. Yeah, so they want to finish by Jan 1 so they're not subject to these new rules and then have to kind of restart the entire process, right? Exactly. Some of the rules are, you know, outreach efforts that have to happen before the process starts. Well, the law wasn't in place and so those weren't done. And so we'd have to restart in order to, to kick those in. And, and then, of course, we'd miss our California Voting Rights Act deadline. So there's a lot of catch-22 for local jurisdictions, and the legislature has really not offered anyone and truly a safe, safe path through them. Right. So that legislation is looming out there, which is creating some impetus for especially those that have already been in receipt of letters uh, or are otherwise being prompted to move to districts to kind of expedite the process to get ahead of that legislation, get through it, because um, otherwise they'll have to restart. Uh, but I guess, Chris, now turning to you, I'm a city. Uh, uh, you know, on the one hand, I might want to rush through this process to beat that deadline. Uh, on the other hand, there's some court legislation here that may or may not change my dynamic. How how might how should I be looking at that, or what questions should I be asking? Um, I mean, it's going to you know be a, a dead horse. It's going to you're going to have to have different circumstances in every jurisdiction, right? It depends on how far you are along the lot path. You know, if you're almost done, you it may be that you just go ahead and finish, right? Um, unless there's a really 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 strong feeling that it's something that you would want to consider spending the time and energy and resources to potentially fight. Um, on the other hand, if you're not that far along, you know, the, the short answer, you know, from a selfish perspective is talk to your lawyer, right? Talk to your lawyer and, and get a, maybe a, a more thorough analysis of your circumstances, your electoral history, um, you know, the, the voting patterns and all of these other factors and how they might play out. Um, that's another alternative that you could, could consider. Um, and it, it's really going to depend because, you know, like I've, I've dealt with jurisdictions that go kicking and screaming into districts. And I've dealt with jurisdictions where um, they're kind of like, yeah, we're not sure we love it, but we don't care that much. Right. And so where you fall on that spectrum will also guide, um, you know, how you approach this. If you don't care that much, then maybe you just go ahead and do it anyway, because it's a sure thing. Um, if you are you know adamantly opposed to it, then you know, maybe some additional analysis is, is the way to go. So you have a better sense of what your risk factors are and whether, you know, you even have the, the ability to potentially fight it if that's that's where you want to or something you want to consider. Yeah. 
Interesting. And Doug, any follow-on thoughts to Chris? I would just say, you know, this is something that Nielsen Merksimer and, and NDC have been working on with jurisdictions in the past to look at potential liability. And and I think Chris is right. This is this has opened a door to more uh, opportunities for defense, but it also has greatly expanded the scope of what we have to look at to do that liability analysis up front. Um, so definitely, uh, it won't be as, as quick and, and easy as we often could do them in the past. Um, but uh, but there's more potential to say you may be able to defend yourself uh, than there was before. Interesting. Uh, are there, uh, at the risk of having glossed over it earlier, uh, and probably because I'm just, um, you guys are better versed in these issues than I, are there any other unique elements of this case or key points of the ruling that I failed to really give you a chance to highlight or discuss that you want to touch upon real quick? Or do you feel like we've covered the basis on those? I mean, well, I think one of the one big thing, right, the one sort of um, elephant in the room, so to speak, is the fact that the court did not address at all the issue of influence, yeah. right? Uh, the California Supreme Court, and it's a departure from the federal court, says that you can be liable if you have harmed the ability of the minority group to influence elections. Um, and, you know, it's not really clear. It's never been clear. You know, there are cases that specifically say we don't know what that means. Right? We have no clue how you would define influence in a meaningful way. Um, does it just mean you know one extra vote? Well, maybe. Um, and this court, you know, gave a couple of examples of what kind of maybe could be influence, but really hunted on the issue um, because it, it's not how this case was litigated. It was litigated as the ability to actually elect your candidates of choice, and so there's sort of this that big issue hanging out there that's maybe the other shoe to drop at some point down the line, uh, you know, a plaintiff's group that actually pursues that influence claim and what that means. So, um, you know, that that's a, a, a limitation of this decision in terms of the guidance it provides. Doug, did you have a phone comment you wanted to make to Chris? Yes, just I had the same thought popped in my head that he mentioned about the influence claims and just to put some numbers to it, in Santa Monica, it's a, it's a little hard to follow because we're talking about only drawing a district that is just 30 or 35 percent Latino. But the plaintiff's case in Santa Monica is that there's enough crossover voting that they can win that district. It's only 30 to 35 percent Latino, but the plaintiffs argue they will win it. And so this whole point in the law about even if plaintiffs, the plaintiff group can't win, they can influence election isn't a question in this case. Neither the plaintiffs nor the city are, are raising it. And so the court completely dodged that issue and said, uh, we don't have to address it. So that's still floating out there as a, as a future, even more complicated scenario for some court to wrestle with if, if some plaintiff tries to bring that claim someday. Uh, yeah, so I guess that partly is the point that this Santa Monica decision is not the end all be all once it's finally resolved, even if it was resolved with some bright lines and whatnot, it may not, it may not address every question that's looming out there. And five years from now, 10 years from now, we'll be having another podcast. We'll all be a little bit more gray and uh, salty, but uh, we'll be having a conversation about that Supreme Court ruling and what's going on with it. Sure. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> 
All right. Do you, uh, gentlemen, have any other final thoughts real quick before uh, we start to wrap up this conversation? I, Like I said, I wanted to get this out pretty quick uh, just because it was such an interesting uh, case of such interest to the local government community in California. And I figured having two of the preeminent experts on a call to discuss it would be helpful for them. Um, any any final thoughts uh, around this case or what jurisdictions should be thinking about? I guess I would say it it's probably good for the cities that the, the court has added these elements of defense to the mix, but it takes a very, very complicated field and makes it even more complicated, unfortunately. And unfortunately, I mean, that's really been the trend in voting rights law generally, right? Not, it's not just the California Voting Rights Act. It's in a lot of respects, what this opinion does is it backs into the Federal Voting Rights Act um, again. Right. And so now we're kind of back in that pre CVRA world, except for this one little piece about not needing to have a majority minority district. Um, so, you know, it's and the Federal Voting Rights Act case law is getting more and more complicated. So that that's just the trend in general. You know, it's it's a little frustrating in particular for small jurisdictions because these cases tend to get decided, you know, with sort of large jurisdictions with resources in mind. You should have done this study. You should have looked at this. You should have done that. And it really puts small jurisdictions that have more limited resources in an increasingly um, difficult spot, right? Because the cost of doing those sorts of things, even if you're, um, you know, not looking to fight it, can can really start to rack up the bills. And so, you know, that that is an unfortunate side effect of all of this stuff. Yeah. On the flip side, those of us that are kind of election nerds. Um, now we get to talk about cumulative voting and thresholds of exclusion and all kinds of stuff that uh, most people's heads will just explode and, and spin off the top of their bodies about. But uh, this this opens the door to a whole new realm of, of complicating this issue. Uh, your, your wives are both so lucky to be able to have that dinner conversation with you now. I'm sure they're <laughs> thrilled. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, all right. How, um, Chris, if people want to get a hold of you, what's uh, email and website for the URL? Yeah. Uh, website is www.nm uh, for Nielsen Luxemer, uh, govlaw.com. All right. And your email address, Chris? Uh, C. Scannell, uh, two N's and two L's at nmgovlaw.com. All right. And Doug? Uh, Doug Johnson, D. Johnson at ndcresearch.com. And our website is www.ndcresearch.com. All right. Well, I assume uh, you're always happy to take a phone call and chat with folks or get an email from them and interact. So um, I really appreciate your time and expertise and the insights you've brought um, to this conversation. Uh, very timely, very important, and uh, very much appreciated. And that's today's report. My thanks to Doug and Chris for joining us. From the whole public CEO team and myself, writer Todd Smith, thank you for your time. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that will help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email editor at publicceo.com.